Let's join together in prayer. Christ alone, cornerstone. Thank you that he's the foundation of all that we do. And we turn now to your word to find out how it is that leaders should be leading congregations following in such a way that the Lord Jesus is always exalted and your word is always exalted. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Titus this morning. If you'll turn to Titus chapter 1, going to pick up a couple of verses before our main text this morning. Our main text will take place in verse 7, but let's pick up in verse 5. We'll review just a little bit as we read where we've been in Titus. The Apostle Paul writing to Titus, his young protege, and he said this in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And we'll stop there for this morning. Last Sunday, we thought about the need for the pastor or overseer or elder, or we call them trustees. Scripture calls them the deacons. Looking at all of those individuals, they must be above reproach. They must be blameless. That's who we're looking for in leaders. That's how our leaders are evaluating themselves constantly. When we see the expression above reproach, that seems to be a summary of a list of other categories that are included for us here in Titus and also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you include above reproach, there are 15 qualities in Titus that epitomize the godly leader. Last week we considered that the godly leader should be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and having children who are believers and not living wild and restless and disobedient lives. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul writing similarly to Timothy said this, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This morning we're going to look at five more of these qualities. It's noteworthy that above reproach appears again. You see it in verse 6. Now you see it again in verse 7. Begins with the reminder that an overseer is entrusted with God's work and must be above reproach. He's described as God's steward, if you see that, for an overseer as God's steward must be. Steward means he's entrusted with God's work. A steward was the manager of the household or the estate. He was appointed by and accountable to the owner or the master. I often thank the Lord before coming into a committee meeting. It could be any meeting. It could be the elders. It could be... A trustees meeting could be a committee of the elders or whatever it may be. And I, I like to thank the Lord for entrusting us to be about his business. We're stewards and we're called to do his bidding. He's the owner master. And so for an overseer as God's steward, 
There are several things that he must be according to this passage. So we look at the next five qualifications. They're all negative. You may have noticed that in the reading. These are qualities we don't want to see in a godly leader. This is one of those not-but scenarios. And the rest of verse 7 is the not, and then we get into some buts. They're not this, but they're something else. And the first one we see is we're looking for a spiritual, godly leader in a church. This person is not someone who is arrogant. So not arrogant. And if you're into the Greek words, you can see the Greek word authetes on the screen, which means self-pleasing or it can mean arrogant, as translated here. It can also mean self-willed. The New International Version calls it overbearing. The New American Standard Version, King James Version, refer to it as self-willed. And I think all of us understand what that word means. It means arrogantly disregarding the interests of others in order to please oneself. That's not what we're looking for in a godly leader. Did you hear the word self a few times in those descriptions and definitions? The word self is all over that. And so it is not a position of self. It is not something where an individual who's in a position of leadership is there so that he can do everything that he's always wanted to do and get everything that he's always wanted to get, but he's there to serve. Here's the opposite of not arrogant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We could also go to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection or brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. I've always liked the way the NIV has rendered that as well. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, that's certainly true for leaders, but it's true for every one of us. It's not self. It's not selfish. It's not self-willed. It's not self-centered. It's about others. That's the kind of leader that we're looking for in every position in the church. One writer has put it this way, the world usually looks to the aggressive, self-assertive person for leadership. But those characteristics disqualify a man for leadership in the church, where a self-willed man has no place. Every believer, and certainly every church leader, must continually fight the battle against fleshly self-will, self-fulfillment, and self-glory. The Believer's Bible Commentary puts it this way in some very powerful words here. If a man is headstrong, obstinately right, with no possibility that those who differ might be. Think about that for a moment. The person that's got to be right, nobody else can be right. It's got to be me. If he's unyielding and impatient of contradiction, then he is unsuited to be a spiritual leader. Now, that's what the Scripture is saying when it says not arrogant. I've got to confess I've seen leaders like that. Headstrong, obstinately right with no possibility that those who differ might be. There's nobody else that can be right. You see a person like this sometimes, and if you're listening, you can hear this person. And you hear this person saying things like, no way. 
over my dead body. That will never happen. And I've seen that in leadership. Not a team player. It's what I want. It's my way or the highway. 1 Peter chapter 5, 3 says of leaders, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so it's not an ego trip. It's not a power-grabbing scheme. It's the heart of a servant looking out for the other person, not oneself. Not arrogant. Not quick-tempered. Again, if you want to get into the, the languages, you see the word orgy almost in here, quick-tempered. Orgulos, or irascible, some have said in, in some of the, uh, the different commentaries. But not quick-tempered, not having a short fuse, not being easily provoked, not being prone to anger, not flying off the handle. And you can think of as many cliches as I can. It's the person that we all know of, the person who is not under control because that temper is always there and showing. Doesn't qualify a man from being an elder or pastor or deacon if from time to time he has a display of some temper. But that should be the exception, not the rule. And it should be taken care of right away if it happens. Because we're not seeking perfection. If we were, we would never ever have a church leader. We would never have a pastor. But we are seeking for those qualities that are the rule rather than the exception. A characteristic or pattern of his life should not be that he is quick-tempered. He should be in control of that temper. His temper should not be controlling him. In the First Timothy 3 parallel passage, a negative characteristic is added to not quick-tempered. It's not quarrelsome, and that's closely related. It means literally to ex- abstain from fighting, to be a non-combatant. It means not contentious means not offensively aggressive. Once again, the one who will not insist on his own rights, the one who's keeping his temper under control. Now let me ask some questions. Is it possible to have a church full of people who are tough on sin, people who are tough on protecting the purity of doctrine, people who are tough on the things God is tough on, and yet... Well, they're tough on all these things. They're tender to one another. Is that possible? It certainly is, and that's what's called for. No, we don't have to roll over and play dead for everything, but we do have to be tender with one another. That's part of the body life. That's part of loving one another. Do we have to snap out at each other? Do we have to be testy? Do we have to have people wonder if we'll lash out at them over an unpredictable offense? Do people walk on eggshells when they're around you because they don't know how you're going to react? All of that is not acceptable. Also not acceptable. Making excuses when we're acting that way. Well, that's just the way I am. You're going to have to get used to me. That's unacceptable. It's unacceptable to blame this on your nationality. I, I just have this Irish temper or my German stubbornness or whatever it may be, that's unacceptable. I see some of that. I see the body life, body action going on here. Okay. Not acceptable to blame it on your family. That's just the way Thompsons are. I've got my father's temper. Wish I did. 
Now, that's unacceptable. What's acceptable? Ask the Lord to help us to be gentle and Christ-like in all relationships and associations and not allow ourselves to kid ourselves with the excuses. There's a third element here, and that is not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. And again, you can see the Greek word that is there, par oinos. Oinos means wine. So when we put par in front of it, we're not to be staying near wine, not to be given to wine, not to be drunken. That's repeated in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. I've got some great news for you this morning. I'm not going to go off on this one. In the past, I've been known to go off on this one. I'm not. But I'm going to treat it separately in a couple of weeks. And we'll deal with this because I believe that what believers need to know is a proper way to handle from the Scriptures the use and the abuse of alcohol. So we'll save that. But for now, this is in the list. Not a drunkard. We don't want a church leader who is a drunkard. Fourthly, not violent. We live in a very violent world. And we can see the violence every time we read an alert on our cell phone every time we turn the news on or every time we see something. We see violence absolutely everywhere. And we get a chance in this society with all of our technology to see more of the violence that's been there, but we see it more and more all the time. A believer in Christ and especially a leader in the church should not be guilty of things like road rage. Think about violence. Think about what should never, ever take place in the life of any believer, but again, especially a believer. Violence. When we think of violence, we think in terms of some of the things that are flashing on the screen now. For those of you that can't see that, we saw a picture of a a lady who was battered. We see a picture of a gun pointing right out at us. We see a picture of a riot. You know where this riot is? You wouldn't believe it. This is in Sweden that is pictured in front of you. You were thinking something else maybe. Uh, But these are things that speak of violence, and we're not supposed to be violent people. Violent translates the Greek word, once again, plektes, which means a smiter, if you want to use an old word, pugnacious, quarrelsome. Describe somebody who's a fist fighter, a bruiser, ready with a blow, pugnacious, contentious. Pictures a person who is always ready with his fists. Somebody, if it were ice hockey, who would be dropping his gloves all the time with little or no provocation. It's an individual who is violent in that sense. Always ready to get into it with someone else. We see it all around, but we don't expect to see that in church leaders, according to what God's Word tells us. And here's another thing. It doesn't have to be limited to the physical. When we think of violence, maybe some of you are thinking now, wow, I'm glad this one didn't get me. I'm not that way. I haven't punched anybody since third grade. Uh, That's not me. I'm not violent. I haven't thrown anybody against a wall recently. I haven't done any of these kinds of things. But it's not limited to physical fighting. It can be verbal quarreling. It can just be a spirit of bellicosity. In the parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, it says, not violent, but gentle. Wait a minute. Not violent, but gentle. I've just excused myself because I'm not violent, 
but it goes all the way to the other extreme now. Gentle. Not violent, but gentle. We should expect to see a gentle person in Christian leadership. Even though there are those who are looking for leaders who could be tough, they're looking for leaders who could crack the whip, but that's not the biblical paradigm that we're given at all. The word gentle defies an exact translation, but here's a list of some of the words that are synonyms of it. It gives a more complete idea of what is meant here. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, it talks about let your gentleness or let your moderation, some of the translations say, or some of them just say let your sweet reasonableness be seen by all people. We also see the word meekness used. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. We see the idea of gentle, not demanding our own rights. Gracious, kind, forbearing, considerate, magnanimous, genial. The NIV likes to use the word considerate, where the ESV oftentimes will use the word gentle. Here's the NIV rendering of some of these. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And in the NIV, it would use the word considerate there. In James 3.17, we see the same thing. Gentle in the ESV, but the wisdom that comes from above is gentle. Substitute the word considerate in there. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 2, same thing. The word considerate, substitute, actually I have it in this one, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Gentleness, considerateness, sweet reasonableness, all of these things are there. If someone is not in control in this way, it is a blight on his leadership. A man called a pastor to try to give some money to the church. He asked if he could come over, but the pastor told him he had a meeting. When asked when the meeting would be over, the man was told, none of your business. Ultimately, the pastor hung up on him. Is he violent? Maybe not in the sense that he didn't hit anybody, but violent because he's not gentle. Who would tell anybody it's none of your business? Who would hang up on somebody? Especially if he's trying to give money to the church. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, not especially that. I said that for the sake of any trustees who may be listening (laughs) for that. Is that a violent attitude? Yes, it is, because it's not gentle. And lastly, not greedy for gain. Not greedy for gain. We're looking for church leaders that are not greedy for gain. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 puts it this way, not a lover of money. In the same context of what a leader should be like. Not a lover of money. It's also mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, in the list of qualifications for a deacon there. And there it's translated, not greedy for dishonest gain. This expression, lover of money, again, I give you the Greek word there just because it gives us a, a fuller meaning, alphilorgyros, not lover silver. That word means literally, not lover silver, not a lover of money. It's a warning against covetousness, one of the commandments that we're told, thou shall not, or you shall not covet. It's a condemnation against greed. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we're cautioned to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
The opposite of being a lover of money is contentment. The opposite, again, not being a lover of money, contentment with what we have. The godly leader, the godly person should be content, not covetous, not after what everybody else has or what I don't have. Throughout history, a lot has been written about happiness and contentment. Here's an individual by the name of Lucius Seneca who 2,000 years ago wrote, It is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more who is poor. There's a lot of truth in that. Other sayings have been, I don't, somebody said this, I don't want to own anything that won't fit into my coffin. Would you say there's somebody that's not very materialistic? Somebody said this, half the world is unhappy because it can't have the things that are making the other half unhappy. Someone else wrote in a book, the most unhappy person in the world is not someone who didn't get what he or she wanted. The most unhappy person is the one who got what he or she wanted and then found out that it wasn't as wonderful as expected. The secret of a happy life is not to get what you want, but to live with what you've got. Most of us spend our lives concentrating on what we don't have instead of thanking God for what we do have. Then we wake up, our life is over, and we missed the beauty of the present. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes. He said, I sought after everything, and he had everything that money could buy, and he had the wisdom to employ it to its fullest use. But every time he got what he wanted, it was like bubbles, like soap bubbles. He would grab for it, and the bubble would pop. He got no satisfaction out of any of that, and we see that today. The glamorous people, the people who are very popular, the people who are filthy, filthy rich, Do you know how much some baseball players get paid per pitch? It's incredible. It's more than some of us get in a year. They're the people that are supposed to have it all, the fame, the popularity, everything going for them. Um, But sometimes it's not enough. Does anybody know who that is? Robin Williams, suicide victim. Anybody know who that is? Kurt Cobain, another suicide victim. Maybe you won't know this individual. Whoops, I don't want to get to Maryland on road too fast. Junior Seal, football player, suicide. Marilyn Monroe, back in the day, the most glamorous actress that anyone could ever have imagined, suicide victim. She had it all. In fact, so did everybody else. They had everything that everybody else thinks is so great. Anybody understand or anybody recognize who this is? Vincent Van Gogh and Vincent Van Went. Um, suicide. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. Everybody who studied literature understands Ernest Hemingway, suicide victim. Anybody understand who this is? This is Freddie Prince. People that everyone thought should have it made. How do you identify a lover of money who's put his eggs in the wrong basket. It's one that is willing to trade more important things for money. One who's ready to trade in his family because he's got to be out making more money and more money. One who's willing to trade his service and worship of the Lord, trade his sanity in some cases, work themselves out of their minds, literally. Testimony, they, they, their health, it's all something that they're willing to give up and to trade in to accumulate money or to promote 
materialism. You know these verses I'm going to show. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Scripture is telling us clearly where our priorities need to be. Those are the priorities of our leaders. We are not looking for someone who is greedy for money. A story is told of a wealthy but eccentric man who called his doctor, called a political friend, and his pastor to his deathbed. He told them how he disagreed with the conventional belief that you can't take your money with you when you die. He said, I'm taking mine. He pulled out three envelopes and he handed one to each of the three men. He explained how the envelopes contained $30,000 in cash and he wanted each man to throw an envelope in when they lowered the casket. At the funeral, all three men did as their dead friend had requested. Upon returning from the cemetery, the doctor's conscience got the best of him and he made a confession to the politician and the pastor. He needed money for his clinic, so he took out $10,000 and threw only $20,000 into the grave. The politician then came clean and admitted taking $20,000 of the 30000 he had in his envelope to make up a campaign shortage. The pastor was appalled at their dishonesty. He pridefully said, I'm ashamed of you, gentlemen. I threw in a check for the full amount. <laughs> we may smile a little bit about that illustration of greed. But there's nothing funny about greed in the Scripture. Covetousness, greed, it says, is idolatry. And especially if we see that quality in a leader. But it shouldn't be in any of us. So I encourage each of us to evaluate ourselves using these qualities. Are you spiritually mature in the areas we've just looked at? Is it all about self or is it all about others? Are you quick-tempered? Are you a drunkard? Are you violent? And I don't just mean physically violent, but are you gentle? Are you greedy for what the world has to offer? Is there the need to confess shortcomings to God even right now? Is there need to ask for his help to control some of these areas that are out of our control? Wouldn't it be great if we never saw these negative qualities in the church again? Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving warnings to us. And thank you that as we evaluate ourselves, each one of us, each one of our leaders, in the future as we look to other leaders, may the qualities we look for be the qualities that you call for. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.